Chasing Quicksilver by Shannon Douglas. Copyright 2020. Chapter 7. A Species with Amnesia. In the beginning, Uranus copulated with Gaia and gave birth to the Titans, one of whom was Mnemosyne, the goddess of memory. She was the mother of the nine muses. From the Greek myths. We are a species with amnesia. Graham Hancock. The word contemplate contains the root of the word temple. It means to make a sacred space in the mind or to reflect upon the sacred. Our memories of this kind of space predate the construction of all kinds of edifices and architecture that we associate with formal places of worship today, and they root into our ancient past when gods and goddesses populated the territory of our collective psyche. There was a time before the great forgetting when we viewed the forces and objects that moved upon the plane of the subtle as living, as real, and as meaningful. The goddess Mnemosyne is one such figure which exists upon the plane of psyche. She's a personification of memory as an organizing principle of the mind and as a representation of our human faculty to rem remember the past. She herself, her story and myth, is a mnemonic device or memory hook for an advanced set of psychic technologies that served mankind for many thousands of years. Mnemosyne gives us access to our individual past, our personal histories and our experiences, and she provides us with the framework and technique to access our collective past and our cultural histories as well. Her children, fathered by Zeus, are the nine muses, the spirits of artistic creativity and inspiration. They represent the creative channels for poetry, drama, and music. We get the words music, amusement, and museum from their legends, and together these figures exist at a constant interplay in the domain of psyche, remembering and imagining. They are representative of how we store and organize time within the psyche, the past, and the imaginations of the future. We've established so far in our exploration that there is a subtle mind, and that it's an inextricable part of our larger self-complex. We've established that there are broad structures upon this psychic plane, from a maze-like underworld to portals or states of being through which we can access or flow divine energy like a hollow bone. We've also established that ideas and thoughts, dreams and imaginations have existence upon this psychic plane. We can call them subtle objects or psychic objects. Mnemosyne and her daughters help us to manage and organize psychic objects within the subtle mind. Remembering a first kiss is a psychic object. Remembering an ancient story or myth is an engagement with a psychic object. And figuratively speaking, with her access to the collective unconscious, she can help us remember the psychic treasures lost in the great forgetting. Mnemosyne was invoked at the beginning of the Iliad and the Odyssey. And she was called upon traditionally at the beginning of recitations of epic storytelling and the performance of epic poetry in the classical age. Indirectly, I was introduced to her by George, who convinced me that afternoon at the Arthrology, all those years ago, that we had collectively forgotten something that needed to be remembered. We call upon the goddess Mnemosyne when we reflect upon or contemplate the past, and when we bring the objects of our memories onto our mental desktops. She is the archive of our life experience, 
Our relationship with her determines the quality and capacity of our personal memories, and understanding her and how she works gives us greater capacity for remembering and for managing memories associated with some of our personal demons and traumas. How we store challenging memories largely determines how those memories affect us. In an earlier chapter, I talked about PTSD and how it can trigger internal psychic defense mechanisms and structures that we originally devised to cope with immediate trauma or with the nature of an ongoing trauma. This response is part of a memory pattern where we're reminded of a memory that we have which pulls us back into the feelings and primal responses of those traumas. It'll be easier to work with a low-scale example of this so that we can see and experience some of the structures and techniques Mnemosyne gives us. Remember a time. Remember, remember a time when you vomited. We have to be a little bit careful because I, I don't want to trigger anyone who has a fragile gag reflex here. And if you're like me, when you start to feel queasy, you feel this this need to swallow. It starts with that first feeling in your stomach and then your mouth starts to water and you try and think of something to take your mind away from it because realizing that you feel nauseous and thinking of it just seems to make it worse. Remember seeing a blue sky, please, with little white fluffy clouds, a light breeze that's just the perfect temperature and remember a feeling of health and balance that's, that's comfortable. Now, imagine in your memory, remembering a time when you were feeling nauseous and viewed a memory from outside of your body. Imagine you're watching yourself and you notice that you had some convulsions or contraction in your abdomen, your, your stomach and throat, running for the bathroom. What's the feeling you have watching the event in your memory compared to remembering the feelings directly that you had in that experience? This is the difference between an associated memory and a dissociated memory. There are two ways in how we store or code those memories within our psyche. And they have an incredible capacity to determine our experience of past traumas. PTSD brings us uncontrollably right back into the memories and feelings of the past events and circumstances. But we also have the ability to remember events and see them from outside of these feelings. And we have the ability to change our memories. These techniques are tools for psychic health and fitness. They have psychic utility. And I would argue that at least some of the ancient students of mnemosity knew that we could reframe memories to help us cope better with the past. As a personification of our individual memory functions, mnemosyne has an important role in our lives at an individual level, but she was also a figure which connected us to the collective memories and helped us form a kind of distributed human cognition that Carl Jung called the collective unconscious. It's well known that the ancient Greeks used advanced mnemonic techniques for storytelling and performing the epics. They kept a strong oral tradition, and it's not surprising that a goddess of memory, Mnemosyne, held a place in their pantheon of transpersonal figures and metaphors. Cultures all over the world who practiced the maintenance of oral traditions were found to be incredibly consistent in their mnemonic feats. 
The Brothers Grimm discovered this as they were collecting the folk tales and fairy tales of Europe as they created their compendium of Western myths and legends. The Grimm's discovered that the trained storytellers they interviewed retold stories word for word even after years-long intervals. This led to the understanding that the stories the Grimm's and many other ethnographers collected had been passed down for centuries and in some case, cases thousands of years from mouth to ear, all the while remaining virtually unchanged. Some adherents of Islam still practice the memorization of the Quran, a book comparable in length to the New Testament. This is something almost unimaginable to most people in the modern West, but this memorization is so fundamental to Islam that in fact Quran means recitation. The gifts of Namasani became increasingly lost to us as the technology of writing spread. Human beings externalized and dissociated from sacred knowledge and ideas and put it in written form instead of keeping it in mind. When we subsequently invented the movable type printing press and we began to mass produce books, the loss became even more pronounced. Mass literacy and the mass externalization of knowledge moved the epic poems and dramas from the psychic space of the storytellers to the pages of books until we'd forgotten that we once had the capacity to keep these stories perfectly in our minds. Canadian philosopher Marshall McLuhan, who coined the term the global village, described this transition as moving from an auditory environment to an electronic one. He argued that how we managed, stored, and communicated our ideas shaped how we thought and, and it shaped our thought process. This is the meaning of his other famous quote, the medium is the message. The medium being the method of communication, auditory, written, printed, or digitized. Humanity's most sacred knowledge, once trusted to a few semi-divine personalities within cultural groups, was committed to scrolls, papyri, and vellum, then mass-produced by the printing press as literacy spread until the present day when the sum of knowledge is in electronic space instead of a psychic one. The tradition of oral history has been lost and almost completely forgotten. We still understand the techniques used to accomplish these feats of memory, however, and there are a few pockets of practitioners of these techniques who celebrate human capacity for feats of memory. One such group of people bring their skills to an annual international memory competition to determine who has the best memory in the world. The competitors largely prepare for this competition by training themselves to organize their inner mental landscapes into what are called memory palaces, in a technique known from ancient Greece as the method of loci, or method of location. These practitioners create vivid, visual, auditory, and phonetic associations of the subjects they're memorizing, and they attach these vivid associations to the rooms and objects in their memory palaces. These memory palaces are recreated from environments we know well, our childhood homes, our schools, our physical body parts. These are the skills and tools taught, one can imagine, by the figurative priests of the Temple of Mnemosyne, a school dedicated to power and skill in memory. To understand how a memory palace works, take a moment to take a deep breath in and out. Close your eyes or soften your gaze.
look into the distance without focusing on anything, or pick an object in your field of vision and focus on it. Breathe in deeply three or four more times in the state before reading further. Fill your lungs all the way up to your top, up to the collarbones. Breathe deeply in as much as you can take. Take one last sip of air and let it go. Imagine now coming home at the end of the day to your home. Imagine the layout of the outside of the house or building that you live in as you approach. Notice the color or colors. How many doors and windows are visible on the ground floor as you approach? What, what color is the door that you enter through? What, what's it made of? Is there a number on it? Imagine in as much detail as you can as you get closer and closer to this object of memory, the image in your mind. Just as you're approaching the door and reaching for the handle or knob, a flaming arrow whizzes by you and lodges itself into the ground right in front of the door with a quiver. It has nailed a bright yellow envelope to the ground that says, Phone bill. Bright yellow. Imagine dusting off the soot from the letter and holding it in your hand after you tear away from the flaming arrow, which, which seems not to be burning anything around it. Now, imagine reaching for the door handle again, stepping past the arrow and across the threshold into your home. What colors the floor? Remember, uh, in your mind's eye, what, what's it made of? What, what sound do your feet make as you step inside and as you, as you begin to sink into the floor up to your knees as if it's quicksand? Imagine vividly that every step you take is like walking in a vat of cookie dough that makes a slurpy sucking sound as you try to pull your feet out of it and take off your shoes. It, it still looks like your floor, but you're almost knee deep in it and all you can smell is cookies, fresh baked chocolate cookies. There's chocolate chips on your shoes. Now, Think of your coming home routine. What do you do first after you take off your shoes? You greet the golden puppy that comes tearing around the corner towards you with his tongue flopping and tail wagging. He's got a huge red bow on his collar and by his leash, he's pulling a brightly colored and perfectly wrapped present in blue wrapping with, with red bows. His tail's painted like a candle that belongs on a cake. You walk to your fridge and open it to discover that it's so empty it looks like the size of a single car garage. A table set inside with an elaborate candelabra and gold utensils and there's a dozen ornate chairs with large neon sequential numbers from 1 to 12 on them arranged around the table. Inside the fridge is decorated with streamers and balloons. Better close your fridge. As you close your fridge, Oscar the Grouch from Sesame Street pokes his head out from the cupboard under the sink, yelling at you. He starts swearing like a sailor that he's going to get big.
big bird to F and mess you up. What? What stands out? What stands out? Pay the phone bill. Pick up the cookie dough you ordered from your nephew's school fundraiser, maybe. Call your loved one because it's their birthday. Make a grocery list and shop for hosting a dinner party. Take out the fucking garbage. <laughs> this is silly. Hopefully it's a fun way to illustrate the basic practice of the method of loci by creating vivid, hyper-visual, and auditory associations to routines that we already have and that we've coded into our long-term memories, like our habitual routines when we get home, we can train our minds to memorize vast amounts of information. Essentially, this is a way of categorizing and classifying our personal mnemonic space in order to train our memories and achieve incredible feats of memorization. It seems like a lot of mental energy to expend, but once practitioners have done the work to train themselves and to populate the space with familiar memory palaces, then their memorization of just about anything becomes second nature. The method of loci is where we get the expression in the first place and in the second place. It comes from the description given by the Greek orators as they mentally traveled through their memory palaces, encountered the heroes, the gods, and the goddesses of their epic stories, and recalled the contents of their arguments, narratives, and moral lessons and recited them to their audiences. If this seems impossible, one of the recent winners of the Best Memory in the World contest won by memorizing the order and sequence of a randomly shuffled deck of 52 playing cards in less than 25 seconds. These are the techniques that the young men and women who were initiated into the role of storytelling have always been introduced to in order to pass on the equivalent of the written Bible word for word Knowledge keepers have been trained this way for tens of thousands of years. Every preliterate culture in the world practice memorization and storytelling techniques like this. Some cultures, like the Celtic tribes, use the stories of different species of trees to code information. Some, like the Kabbalistic sects of Judaism, use glyphs or symbols like the Tree of Life, and others use the animals of their environment to code stories and wisdom. Their memory palaces or memory temples may have been different, but the process was the same. I remember fondly that my father-in-law used to frequently say that there's three types of people in the world. People who make things happen, people who watch things happen, and people who wonder what the fuck just happened. One of the greatest things we've forgotten in our modern age is that there are valid techniques for organizing our psychic landscape and our subtle minds rooted deep in human prehistory. We've forgotten that we can proactively take charge of our psychic life and we can organize our experience and our memories and our knowledge in such a way as to transform our lives. Most of us treat our minds and our memories kind of like a garage or storage closet. We open the door, we put stuff there wherever there's space and shut the door again. Mnemosyne gives us the ability to take charge of our mental, emotional, and mnemonic landscape and to install organizers, shelves, sections and hooks. In the modern age, if we don't practice the mental discipline and organization required to use memory like this, we see memory palaces as collections of dusty rooms that we don't need anymore, and we fail to recognize what a chaotic space our psyches are. As we move through and explore this mnemonic field together and bring these ideas back to life, 
we're going to engage a faculty of examining metaphor as a principle of psychic organization that has shaped human history and evolution. In mnemonic space, we know these metaphors as gods and heroes, but far from being offensive to the religious mind, these should be viewed from a different perspective than we traditionally understand them. Mnemosyne wasn't worshipped as a deity. She was a psychic construct and a teacher. The cosmology of the religious mind holds that God is outside of us in a remote place and that we're here on earth, separate, suffering, and in need of salvation. Daniel C. Dennett, well-known new atheist, defines religion in his book, Breaking the Spell, as social systems whose participants avow belief in a supernatural agent or agent whose approval is to be sought. This presupposition about religion and the nature of our relationship with gods forms part of a grammar and a syntax of religion established with monotheism that still informs the presuppositions of modern thinkers and philosophers like Dennett himself, who tend to lump all references to transpersonal objects or characters into the category of false beliefs and illusions. That is not the case here, as we can understand from meeting Mnemosyne and her daughters. They are personifications of cognitive functions which we all share. Mnemosyne isn't a goddess that requires worship. Her mnemonic, her myths and legends contain tools with psychic utility and a methodology to learn those tools and to pass them down from mouth to ear. We have to remember that in order to code knowledge within our individual or collective psyches, that it has to be vivid, memorable, in full color. Malcolm Gladwell uses the term stickiness in his book, The Tipping Point, in the context of ideas and information leading to massive change. Sacred symbols, myths, mysteries, and epic adventures have psychic stickiness, and that's why they're so memorable. The stickiest and most obvious memory palace in the world is the Temple of the Night Sky. Mankind, with the help of Mnemosyne, once hung great stories of, of existence upon the constellations and from the moving planets. These stories, though we've forgotten them, are still mnemonically coded all around us. The earliest physical temples in the world were outdoor observatories aligned with the objects of the heavens and were built to chart the cycles of the natural world and the movements of the ancient gods. The backdrop of the night sky is the Milky Way and human beings tracked the solar calendar, essential for agriculture, by marking months of the year based on constellations in which the sun rose on any given day. The sun also gave us the cardinal points of the year, the summer and winter solstices, and the spring and autumn equinox. The sun is one of seven heavenly bodies which moves against the fixed backdrop of the Milky Way and the annual slow-shifting progression of the ecliptic plane which is divided into the signs of the zodiac. In classical astronomy and in modern astrology, the sun and the moon were considered planets like Mercury, Mars, Venus, Jupiter, and Saturn which each wandered the constellations according to their own frequencies and rhythms and personalities. Each of these was associated with a particular god, and each god, as we know, has a distinct personality type. It's worth stressing again that none of these gods demanded worship, supplication, or sacrifice. They were the sticky mnemonics and lessons of life that children learned under the ancient night sky from mouth to ear which helped them organize their understanding of the world. 
While the cycles of the sun and the moon have obvious correspondences to events on Earth, the sun governing the seasons and the moon governing fertility cycles and the tides, the five smaller planets had different correspondences on Earth, as above, so below. Their stories form the basis of a psychological understanding of people and communities. Our modern understanding of personality gained legitimacy as we filtered superstition out through scientific advancement. In 1921, Carl Jung published his book, Personality Types, which led to the creation of Myers-Briggs Typological Inventory, the MBTI. The MBTI is widely used in business and government around the world to facilitate effective communication between people and a better understanding of others in professional relationships. Absent the understanding that there are different types of people who have different focuses in life, like engineers and geologists and artists, communication breaks down. A few years after Young's book was published, an American psychologist at Harvard, William Marston, published another substantial work on personality. Marston's work led to the widely used modern DISC profile, a four-quadrant map of personality. Both Marston and Young's work, and any of the several significant spin-off models, like True Colors or the Colby Inventory, can be correlated to much earlier structures and models of personality, like the classical four elements, earth, water, fire, and air. These four elements in classical reference correspond also to the four seasons of the year and the four cardinal points of the compass. They're a mnemonic. During the same period in which Jung and Marston were putting forward their four spectrum or four quadrant models of personality, another group was taking a different approach, which laid the foundations for the science of modern personality theory. Researchers now feel that they've finally discovered a valid personality type inventory called the Big Five. The five-factor model of personality is now the standard in clinical psychology and the psychology of personality types. It's considered universally valid, and it's been verified in scientific research across cultures and languages in more than 30 countries through thousands of studies. The five spectrums of this model can be remembered with the mnemonic OCEAN, which stands for openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Every human being expresses these five spectrums in some way through their psyches. We all have all of these traits and these capacities. For example, when we consider the openness spectrum, our unique personality finds a level between being very open to experience and new things and completely closed to new ideas and experiences. We can also view neuroticism, for example, as a measure of how neurotic a person is on a scale of 1 through 10. The understanding that four temperaments described by Marston and Young correlate or correspond to the four elements or the four humors of sanguine, choleric, melancholic, and phlegmatic is quite common. We, we know that these personality or preference type inventories have been used since the time of Aristotle and Plato. Modern psychologists seem smug and self-congratulatory that they've found the model of personality based on scientific research. However, the Big Five is just as archaic in its roots as the four elements are, if not even more archaic. They're using the same language to describe human personality as has been coded in the personalities of the planetary gods, pegged to the constellations and the temple of the sky. 
the archetypal descriptions that have been used in astrology for thousands of years have not changed. But psychology has just recently remembered the five factors of personality. In order to understand how this is possible, it's useful to remember how this Big Five model came into scientific domain. It began in the 1930s with a lexical analysis of the Oxford English Dictionary. The researchers extracted all of the adjectives that described human behavior from the dictionary. This is the lexical analysis. And they discovered that these words seem to fall neatly into five categories. In the 1980s, though the modernized four-quadrant models of personality were widely used, researchers again began examining other tools for describing personality and revisited the lexical analysis method first used in the 1930s. They did this using an interview method, extracting the adjectives people use to describe others and their behavior, and found that the adjectives and descriptors seemingly fell again into five categories. Through iterative research, this idea gained traction, and as personality science saw a fashionable resurgence in the 1990s, the model was widely researched and verified in studies around the world. For the ancients who contemplated the temple of the heavens, who worked with the ancient ally Mnemosyne, these things are just remembered in the modern age that were forgotten in the purges of history. Human beings have been analyzing and describing the behavior of other humans using words for thousands of years. Whether consciously or through iterative storytelling, we seem to have distilled these personality types through storytelling a very long time ago, and we seem to have recorded them on the stars, so we would always remember. Should it be surprising, then, that the constellations and the wandering planets, which we've told stories about for thousands of years, were the pegs or the loci upon which the great stories of early humanity were hung? Should it be surprising that the gods of Olympus, like the goddess Mnemosyne, are representative of aspects of the psyche that are wired biologically and neurologically within us? Let's examine the stories of the god Zeus, who we've met already in various forms, He's someone we all know well. He is part of us. We've met him as the philandering and jovial conqueror who turned his lover into a cow, as the bombastic school principal focused on growth and accomplishment, and as the teleological aspect of consciousness that moves us from one stage of development to the next, from tantrums of the terrible twos to the loving and caring stage, where a child can recognize that there are others outside themselves with needs and feelings at the same time. The spectrum of openness in the Big Five model describes how easily a person adapts to new ideas and circumstances. It also describes problems that people who are too open can get themselves into. It describes how people who are not open enough can hold themselves back. And if we take the pattern descriptions of the Big Five personality type inventory and the descriptions of the five planetary gods from a good book of archetypal and analytical astrology, and we remove the identifiers from the text, the planets and the types could not be distinguished from each other. The mythology and mnemonics of Jupiter describe the accomplishments and warn of the pitfalls that we experience in our lives related to our degree of openness. The mythology and mnemonics of Saturn or Cronus describe the structures and organization of time and the concepts of order which corresponds to the spectrum of 
conscientiousness. The mythology and the mnemonics of Mars describe the active principles of Yan energy, extroversion, aggression, action, and force. The mythology and mnemonics of Venus, traits associated with the feminine, nurturing principles describe trait agreeableness. And Mercury, the trickster, the shapeshifter, the messenger of the, the gods, describes the spectrum of trait neuroticism. The sun and the moon and the other five celestial personalities are mnemonically coded into our lives so deeply we don't even realize it. The days of the week are part of mnemosyne's code for them. Lundi, la lune, or Monday, moon day. Mardi is Mars day. Mercredi, Mercury day, etc. Our English names for the days of the week are the same except derived from Germanic and Norse names for the planets. Thor's day and Wooten's day, Odin's day. Wednesday. Yahweh's heaven is a barren wasteland compared to the richness and abundance of this temple of the sky. Yet to know the true richness of story and symbol of this memory palace is taboo to the religious mind. At times it was such an offense to perpetuate the memories of this sacred temple that it would attract the attention of the inquisitors. Metaphorically speaking, the church set up its own cherubim and flaming sword at the gates of heaven to prevent anyone from gaining access. It's the same temple of the sky that Copernicus, Bruno, and Galileo looked up at as they were fighting against the religious beliefs that the Earth was the center of the universe. The great astronomers and mathematicians were getting clearer and clearer views through their telescopes of predictably moving planets made of the same things the Earth was made from. The scientific conclusions they reached took the Christian God out of the cosmos, and by category error, comparing religious dogma and the legitimate ancient wisdom coded in the sto stories of the stars, they too put cherubim at the gates and a flaming sword to restrict knowledge and access. In the case of science, this was a misunderstanding of the grammar of religion and worship, confused with the legitimate ancient understanding of the nature of the psyche and the soul. They erased the memory of the archetypes from the heavens.